Hi, this is Jim Montague, Executive Editor of Control Magazine and ControlGlobal.com, and this is the 10th in our Controlled Amplified podcast series. As usual, we're talking with different experts about important topics in the process control and automation field and seeking to go beyond our print and online coverage to explore some of the underlying issues affecting users, system integrators, suppliers, and other people and organizations in these industries. Once more, I'm interviewing our friends at ARC Advisory Group, who researched and analyzed all the content that went into our October 2019 cover article on the Control ARC Top 50 Global and North American Automation Vendors, and get beneath some of the numbers and trends, crystallize some issues, and find a few basic bottom lines, hopefully. Uh, with me today is Larry O'Brien, ARC's Vice President for Research, his area of expertise is process automation on the supplier side and the upstream and midstream oil and gas industry. We're also joined by Craig Resnick, Vice President and a member of the automation consulting team at ARC that covers the PLC, PAC, HMI, IOT, and industrial PC markets, as well as the packaging, plastics, and rubber industries. Well, guys, uh, thanks for letting me uh, bend your ears again today. Hey, no problem, Jim. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah, good morning. Okay, all right. Let's uh, get started. Uh, I guess first off, uh, you know, we just put a seething lava and a, and a ready for a rumble headline on Control's October cover, but those are really the only signs of the latest uh, must-happen-every-10-year recession that I've seen. Uh, for about we're, we're about two years overdue. Uh, can the top 50s performance or their latest guidance uh, indicate when or if this train will ever arrive? Well, it's a great uh, it's a great question, Jim. You know, one of the things that we hear repeatedly when we talk to you know the the customers in this industry is they're not the the thing that they fear is is the fear of the unknown and right now the unknown tends to be in areas such as trade and tariffs and in many cases what they've been doing is they've been holding off on some projects purely because they just want to know what are these trade agreements going to be when are they going to be signed uh, what type of implication does that have regarding their supply chain and costs so in, in no case is anybody saying we're canceling projects or, or not going forward or we're really necessarily afraid of a recession, but what they are is afraid of, of a, the fear of the unknown because even if the news isn't good, it enables them in a position to say, okay, if, if our costs are such, now we can make the right supply chain and cost decisions based on the facts. So one of the things that we're finding is is that the fear factor is 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 less on the uh, on the economy falling apart but more so right now on this uh, this this fear of uncertainty and i would say that in many cases once the once some of these decisions are made whether it be uh, us and china whether it be uh, you know when when brexit gets uh, officially executed for as an example usmc agreement these are the things that they're looking at to help them make decisions uh, going forward. So that, that seems to be kind of like what we're hearing from the, 
the end users who are as far as from a project perspective, and also as we talk with the automation suppliers as they're putting together their uh, quarterly forecasts. Um, I think that going, uh, that getting some clarity in the future regarding some of these trade and tariff agreements will go a long way to kind of eliminating kind of this, this, this feeling of turbulence regarding having a, uh, a recession. Right. Well, I mean, but uncertainty and, you know, seeking clarity are, are they're, they're like a perennial hazard. They're like a, just a, you know, that they're always present, right? So. The, the, the difference is, is that at one time, you know, you kind of knew, okay, if we, if we do business with China, the costs are going to be X, for example. And right now, there isn't that, that certainty as far as what is that going to be and how is that going to turn out. I'm obviously, I'm just using U.S. and China as an example. But whether it be issues of are we going to have tariffs with the Europeans regarding the importing of European automobiles is, is another example. So right now, they, they've never had this level of uncertainty. Now, conversely, um, they're all very, very excited about the latest technologies. And the one thing, uh, Jim, that uh, we've all witnessed as we're, as we're out in the field and even going to some of these events, uh, these user group events, is you notice that the attendance is always breaking records. No matter what event we go to, it's, it's like it's bulging at the seams with people. So what's happening is, is that even though these companies are maybe nervous for the economy, but they're not showing their nerves as far as sending key people that are leaving the plants and factories and taking, you know, often a week of their time and investing their time into looking at some of the latest uh, technology and solutions. And that's really why we're kind of a, a little bit more optimistic going forward, that once we can get through some of this uh, economic turbulence regarding trade and tariff and, and even to a certain extent uh, ge geopolitical uncertainties, I think we'll be in a position that some of these projects that are, uh, that are, that are on hold right now uh, will, be moving, will be moving forward. Right. And Larry, I tromped on your voice as usual again. So <laughs> what were you going to say? Oh, that's okay. I mean, I just wanted to point out, if you read the article that we wrote for the Control Top 50 this year, we do point out that many of the automation suppliers are expecting uh, an increasingly challenging business environment moving forward for 2020. So they're planning on reduced performance in the next year. Yeah. So so they're they're ready for it, pretty much. I mean, they're they're planning for it, and I think they're being pretty upfront um, that they expect some, you know, some headwinds. Uh, you know, particularly in upstream oil and gas. But, you know, some other companies were calling out food and beverage and pharmaceuticals uh, and so forth. So there are some underlying weaknesses that are there, uh, but they are yeah. prepared for it. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that that makes this uh, kind of a challenging environment right now is they they see these things on the horizon, and there is this uncertainty, like Craig says. But at the same time. Everybody's undergoing their own digital transformation. Yeah, and but it's not the first rodeo, right? I mean, they know what they have to do. That it's happening on both sides, on the supplier side and the end user side. You know, the end users are trying to navigate their way through digital transformation and figure out what all this new technology means, and you know, how do we implement this in our organizations in a way that provides real business value, right? Yeah. And uh, the suppliers themselves are in the process of undergoing some pretty radical transformations in some cases of, you know, tr you know, traditional businesses that have been in place for quite some time. Yeah. So, so then if the overall economy is maybe headed somewhere unexpected, 
you know, are, are efficiencies generated by the industrial Internet of Things in cloud computing and machine learning and artificial intelligence and other kinds of uh, digitalization? Are those really having an impact? Uh, the top 50 sure seem to be buying into the IT side. So, it, you know, it, it, but is it still too soon for IIoT's impact? You know, maybe declining energy costs are helping, too. Yeah, I mean, IIoT is happening now. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not right to say is it too soon because it's happening. Um, you know, and, and as Craig said, you go, you go to most of these major user group meetings, you see how it's happening now. Yeah, but I mean, is it is it having an impact on their, like, you know, significant impact on their financial performance as reflected in the top 50 data? Oh, I think what's happening is is that, you know, remember, these, these projects are very scalable. And the respect is that people are not doing full-blown rip and replace for IoT. So you're not going to see, you know, the massive, massive projects and, and hockey stick-like curve growth rates that, uh, and I think, you know, per, as the article says, for 2020, I think a lot of the headwinds uh, that Larry brought up, are because of the fact that a lot of these projects are, are, are begin small and scalable, and the uh, and I think the idea is that these companies are beginning as they're reinventing themselves, uh, as the customers are reinventing themselves, um, they're beginning to slowly but surely deploy IoT and many of these other uh, technologies. So we're, we're seeing artificial you know artificial intelligence and machine learning and and certainly analytics, uh, especially analytics embedded in, embedded at the edge. Uh, for example, and so you're actually able to process information locally and uh, share the business type of information up into the cloud. So this is these things are happening now, but I can but I can tell you the the, the common denominators that we're seeing both in talking to the customers and at these user group events, uh, the implementation of technologies such as augmented reality and virtual reality because those are things that are providing tangible, immediate value. I mean, using, for example, augmented reality as somebody is doing maintenance on the factory floor, especially if that person is a, a, a new worker that's replaced a, a baby boomer, has recently retired. That augmented reality is now supplementing the information that that worker needs as they walk through the factory floor and help them do their job, help them repair something faster put them in a position that they don't make a mistake that could involve um, in, endangering the plant or endangering their own lives because it's act giving them guidance and step-by-step -step information. We're using virtual reality. You know, many of these new workers are coming from an area where they're much more familiar with Fortnite than they are with uh, with some of the products that their uh, new company is uh, is manufacturing. And it gives them the opportunity to use some of the tools that they're comfortable with and uh, and gives them the training that they need to help them develop, to help them go through any particular scenario that could possibly happen uh, on the factory floor and be prepared to it, for it, and uh, be trained for it. So in many cases, we're starting to see this digitalization play a key role, but again, from a sales perspective, and I think the reason that a lot of the, uh, the, the, the some of these numbers tend to be tend to be flat going forward in 2020, as, as the article uh, discusses, these are things that are going to be done incrementally, and as the value is proven and the ROIs are proven, then you're going to start to see going going forward. 
um, you know, certainly far greater business when it comes to all the digital transformation, IoT technologies. But uh, we're very excited about certain ones such as augmented reality, virtual reality, yeah. the combination of the two, which is known sometimes as mixed reality. Those are some of the things that we're seeing you know, booth by booth at these user groups, you know, case studies oh, yeah. and we're seeing users purchasing. Mm -hmm. So so one of the things that people have been doing is, is digitalization seems to be a way to not have to rip and replace and you can put a cheap video camera in front of, in front of an old gauge. And, and then, you know, conversely, it seems like IT and cloud computing are relying on the edge devices and, and uh, which is one of the talents and long-standing capabilities of the top 50. So I assume you guys would agree with that, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you're really in a position here where you know a lot of what information you're gathering at the edge has to do with asset performance management. I mean, you know, if you say what are some of the biggest challenges that any manufacturer or processor has is to reduce or is preferably eliminate unscheduled downtime. So the idea is now with IoT and being able to embed low-cost sensors into these rotating assets and being able to do predictive and prescriptive analytics. And they want that analytics often located, you know, as close to the asset as possible. And uh, now you're getting involved with edge. But because edge does not necessarily making a control decision, I mean, you're, you're feeding information on, on the health of bearings or the, or, or the health of an asset, for example, vibration. Uh, you're not, these are not inf information you're getting necessarily from on or off or temperature, pressure, level of flow that's going to be making a decision that a PLC or a PAC or a DCS may make, uh, you know, certainly for, uh, you know, control loop or PID loop. So this is information that is going to the cloud and helping to now schedule, for example, when do we need to have a, a preventative maintenance shutdown? When are we going to be able to have the assets that need to be repaired scheduled to arrive so they arrive the day they're needed and not too early so we're not adding uh, excess inventory to the, to the supplier, I mean to the end user. We're also in a point where now we can now schedule the right maintenance people uh, to be there. So when, the, when we've had the schedule shut down, the necessarily repairs can be made and the, and, and the right human assets uh, will be in place as well as the physical assets. So this is something where um, you know all the major automation suppliers I think are doing a, a great job with their asset performance management solutions, and that's something that really uh, takes advantage of the edge and the appropriate analytics software that uh, you know helps them determine uh, to make these right prescriptive and predictive analytics decisions. Um, so, so are there any uh, you know? I, I know the suppliers are, are doing a good job with this. Is there any of the end users or industry sectors? that are handling the digital transformation especially well and you know maybe they've got some best practice that they could teach the other industries and users well one of the things that we've seen is you know one of the beauties of digital transformation is the ability to remotely connect assets in locations that are either expensive to get to or difficult to get to also enables to help people you know main, maintain a, a relationship uh, with their uh, with their assets so we're seeing for example the OEMs we just uh, you know we, we talked to a lot of our OEMs and not only are they you know once they sell the machine for example that uh, helps them uh, derive money from the capex side of the ledger 
But now they're able to maintain a connection to their machine, and whether it be patches or updates or helping them with the diagnostics and monitoring and managing those machines. The lot of the times the OEMs are really doing a great job uh, leveraging digital transformation to maintain that connectivity and, and, and provide tremendous value to their, uh, the end users that are deploying those machines as part of uh, their manufacturing or processing uh, uh, that they're doing uh, in the, in, on the factory floor. So this is something that we're seeing the, they, they're doing a, a really good job. So I think the OEMs uh, are uh, certainly benefiting from it. Also, certainly when you get into the regulated industries, um, you know, looking at, for example, like life science and, and biotech and food and beverage, because for things that do require regulation and uh, do require um, having having that level of information, um, documentation to kind of just, you know, to, to go, going forward, I think that's the, those industries have, uh, have benefited from it. And certainly anything to do with, um, you know, as Larry can certainly speak with, you know, with things like upstream and midstream where you're in you know remote locations and uh, you often do not have a worker that can be managing that asset uh, rather than having to fly a worker out or gather information on a on a clipboard and manually enter it into a uh, an excel spreadsheet for example but the ability to do that from uh, from remote locations that again difficult and expensive to access so those those are some of the areas where we've seen uh, maybe some of the quickest response IoT has definitely brought on, you know, intensified this trend toward remote operations, uh, particularly, as Craig said, in, you know, upstream uh, oil and gas, offshore and onshore applications where a lot of these companies don't want to put people in harm's way anymore. They don't want to have people out there in remote locations doing this kind of work. Um, and one long-term trend that we see also is this shift from not just remote monitoring and remote operations management, but also shifting more and more into controlling these processes remotely. Um, we're not 100% there yet, um, but we are headed in that direction. All of these things um, create concerns around cybersecurity. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned before, you know, the great thing about IoT is I can get a cheap device and, and, you know, put up a video camera to monitor a process, but you don't know if that device uh, is secure or it's been commissioned securely, or it's, you know, from a trusted vendor, or if you just went out and bought it at Home Depot, you know, to use in the plant. So this is where security concerns really start to mount, uh, in my opinion, you know, the, the remote monitoring, remote operations, and, and moving into remote control. And, you know, this huge number of sensors that we have for IoT, and not all of them are purpose-built for industrial applications. So we Definitely, we need more of a focus on cybersecurity when it comes to IoT and, and all these sensors and all these very sensitive applications that we have. And we have assets now that used to be just dumb assets, right? And then one example is from the forum, uh, you know, back in February that we had. It was a, uh, an end user that uh, had to, uh, you know, instrument their blowout preventers uh, and do, you know, reporting of maintenance information and, uh, you know, basically live data from blowout preventers and offshore applications to ensure greater safety in the Gulf of Mexico. And you got to remember a lot of these assets have previously been completely dumb. Uh, so now we're instrumenting and connecting to a lot of stuff that we've never connected to before. So those are all things that we need to take into consideration to make sure that those are, you know, secure and, and built for purpose. Right. But just as some of the uh, traditional values of going out and seeking data points and bringing them in, you know, what I'm, what I'm finding with the recent security coverage is that uh, a lot of your traditional 
characteristics of the process automation and control engineers is that they can use that inquisitiveness or that ability to go and, and grab data points or implement process safety can, you know, those uh, attributes can then be used for security too, right? Sure they can. Yeah. Well, now you're getting into the topic of data management, right, which is a whole other issue because what I is also creating is enormous amounts of data. Uh, So what you have to do is be able to efficiently use that data and turn it into useful information, right? You have to contextualize it and actually enable people to use all of this data to make intelligent decisions about what's going to happen in the business or the process or what have you. Um, so the, you know, the mountain of data is a challenge too. Um, you know, and yeah, some of that data can be used with an eye towards, uh, improved cybersecurity. Uh, you know, we're seeing huge growth, uh, in, in the market for, uh, you know, ICS or operational level cybersecurity, uh, applications and products and services. It's a whole new class of vendors out there. Uh, you know, hundreds of vendors, uh, many of them are still in the startup phase. Um, and a lot of this, the data coming from these devices is being used for that purpose. I think there are some underlying issues within the industry in terms of how we manage data, how we do things like management of change, you know, hasn't always been uh, 100%, you know, at the end user companies. So, you know, in some ways to get the data, to get the value out of this IoT uh, and all this data, we, we also have to consider how we're using that data and maybe break away from some of the patterns that we've gotten into in the past of maybe not effectively using that data, right, or having access to a bunch of data that we don't don't really use. Well, I was just thinking that the traditional, you know, abilities of the process control engineer as far as doing their job could also be used then to make cybersecurity a little less alien, Um and something that had to be worried about. I hope that's true. Yeah, and I think cybersecurity is something that has to permeate throughout the enterprise, so not just on the engineering side, but also in operations, right? We haven't fully examined how cybersecurity affects different roles uh, within a process plant, for example. Like, what kind of information does an operator need to see from a cybersecurity perspective? Right. Um, You know, how how should cybersecurity be looked at in the engineering phase of a project? You know, how do you incorporate cybersecurity into the selection process when you're looking at a new vendor? You know, so some of these changes have yet to fully permeate their way through the industry, let's say. Uh, But but they always always talk about lawyers being 10% private detectives. And and I was just thinking that, you know, a process control engineer is, you know, kind of a detective, too, for the values they have to get and the, the safety um, you know, risk assessments they have to do. And then, you know, the cybersecurity assessment could just be another thing to go and investigate. So actually we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of the learnings that we've seen in process safety, right? As far as, uh, uh, right. has op analysis and things like that. We're seeing a lot of the learnings that we've developed in the world of, in the discipline of process safety now being applied to the world of cybersecurity. Yeah. Where you basically have like a cyber PHA or cyber HAZOP process, mm-hmm. um, you know, but there's that's, more of an eye towards the making cybersecurity a risk-based, you know, science versus just trying to counteract every possible threat that's out there. We need, I, in my opinion, we need to approach cybersecurity more like we do process safety, and that's already happening. Certainly. Um, to go off on a bit of a tangent, I, I just covered the bioforums search for plug-and-play process automation at the automation fair last week, and they are, you know, acknowledged that they're talking 
to our friends at the Open Process Automation Group as well. And I was just wondering, is there any news on the uh, Open Process Automation standard effort and are more top 50 members joining in do we know of? Well, I, I know there was a recent announcement where um, ExxonMobil, Aramco, BASF, I think ConocoPhillips, Dow Chemical, Georgia Pacific, and Lind are collaborating together to create a, a test bed. And this test bed mm -hmm. will be a place where many of uh, the OPAF member supplier members can go and begin to do, you know, develop and and test various uh, products um, that would, you know, come into it, adhere to the OPAF. Uh, standards that are certainly in the process of, of being developed. So I think the test bed really goes a long way in saying that, A, this is not just for ExxonMobil and not just for the oil and gas industry, that it's uh, it's spreading certainly to other, other heavy process industries as well, and B, that the fact that this is not going to go away, and uh, I think that the suppliers, those that, uh, you know, are enthusiastic uh, members of OPATH and maybe those that have uh, have begun to, they say, join OPATH uh, going going forward. Uh, I think they all recognize that this is something that there is 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 here to stay, and it's something that will be to the the benefit uh, certainly of all end users in process control. Uh, and at the same time, I think is going to provide help the uh, suppliers, you know, continue with their own digital transformation efforts as far as what types of products and solutions they provide um, that really are going to, uh, you know, and in some cases, yes, it may, these may be some disruptive technologies that may change the way uh, we look at, uh, you know, traditional systems from the past, but I do think that going forward, this is really going to enable all these suppliers that have uh, an incredible amount of industry knowledge and intellectual property to really leverage that into some of their, their unique OPATH solutions. And I think what this is going to do is, even though it may change the type of, of products and solutions and services that they are bringing out uh, rolling forward, but I think it's really going to secure each of their positions as, as major players in process automation going forward. And, and again, may, with maybe, maybe you're moving a little bit from the CapEx side of the house to the OPEX side of the house, from hardware more towards software and services. But I do think that the uh, the incredible amount of uh, IP and process knowledge that these suppliers have um, is really going to uh, be very, very important for OPATH and provide them with really like a, a huge role uh, going forward, uh, even if they're presenting that role maybe in a slightly different fashion than they have traditionally. Well, great. I think it also opens the door to new players, too. Um, mm -hmm. OPATH, OPATH is not going away. Uh, back in June, they had the interop event for OPATH um, with participants from 15 OPATH member companies. They brought a total of 25 prototypes. Uh, so it's not just the ExxonMobil testbed, which is, you know, definitely proceeding apace, but lots of other prototypes found their way into that meeting. Um, and they're not all from the major suppliers. So, you know, I think that's – and that's a positive thing, right? I think that's a positive thing. Yeah, um, yeah. So this this is not going away. Um, yeah, it's another manifestation of digitalization, right? Yeah, and you know, yeah. OPATH isn't reinventing the wheel. I mean, they're drawing off existing standards and technologies that are out there. So this isn't yeah. all just new stuff. A lot of this is just hashing out. You know, what what standards are we going to follow and how? Uh, you know, and how does that translate into you know a system? So there's a lot of activity in OPATH, and it's not going to stop. Cool. Well, it's it's good to good to hear. Um, you know, and, and then, oh, we, I guess we kind of, kind of come full circle to 
trying to reduce some of the, you know, uncertainty, um, you know, and they have standards and have, uh, you know, common ways of, of carrying out technology. So I was kind of wondering, hey, if we're going to do, you know, safety risk assessment, we're going to do cybersecurity risk assessment, maybe there's a way for uh, listeners within their own local economies, maybe they could do an economic risk assessment, you know, for their organization and their locality. Uh, since the times are going to remain uncertain, you know, maybe there's some ways that people can uh, uh, reduce their economic worries a bit. Uh, you know, are there? Well, I think there's no there's no question that all major uh, you know users uh, looking at not only certainly the, the the dangers of what would happen if their uh, if their manufacturing processes are, are compromised, if their safety systems are compromised both from the, the, the potential loss of lives um, within the plant and sometimes it's even within the community surrounding the plant. And I mean, these are things that just, you know, are absolutely positively unacceptable. And I think every responsible organization today recognizes the fact that that is their number one priority. You know, as, as much as all these companies that are, are publicly held and are responsible certainly for maximizing the shareholder value, but most important, it's the protection of their of the workers within the plant and the people that reside in the communities around the plant. And I think that that is getting, you know, certainly uh, the the sea level attention that it deserves. And I think what it does is it puts these companies in a in a position that they recognize that even if it's, uh, you know, there there is no ROI measurement. Uh, on the, and had that level of safety and protection because uh, you know you're now you're at a point that the the whole enterprise and community can be at risk. So in this particular case, um, I think you're seeing you know the attention at all levels of the organization. And you know one of the things that uh, we do, for example, at a at ARC at our at our annual February forum, uh, you, know, you know Larry leads up many of our uh, cybersecurity workshops, and I think those are probably our most well attended and and popular programs at the forum. Uh, you know for that exact reason that there is there is no there is no strike two. You you absolutely positively have to do everything in your power to make sure that the protection of the plant and the community is uh, is that you're taking every conceivable step and in many cases you're all you may be just at keeping one step ahead and there's no there's no magic uh, there's no magic uh, thing that you can do to to prevent the, from anything from happening but you have to be making that continuous journey to stay to stay ahead of uh, of anything happening within your plant as, as, as using whatever tools and uh, resources possible right yeah, like I always say, it's not something you can buy in a box. Uh, you have to implement it in your organization. Yeah, and, and it can have a. And positive, I think the difference uh, now, the difference now is that you know we're seeing plants and facilities as a target of attack. Yeah. You know, and not just cyber attacks. I mean, they had that drone strike, uh, you know, at a Ramco earlier this year. Mm -hmm. um, so those, you know. Since I've been in the industry, that's that's kind of a new thing, you know, seeing stuff like that, um, which also was, you know, the the, the uh, brought about by new technology. You know, in this case, it was drones and other advanced technology. But you know, there's there's definitely more of an urgency, I think, that that users are concerned about these kind of advanced persistent threats, uh, as they say, in the mm -hmm. cybersecurity industry, where you have, uh, you know. Uh, 
organizations that have the backing of nation states with very deep pockets uh, to do things like reverse engineer, you know, proprietary safety system protocols to try and disrupt plant operations. Uh, so that's, right. you know, it's, that's a new emerging threat. But, but investing in, you know, safety and security can, people are really realizing it can have a positive economic benefit as opposed to just being a cost. And maybe that'll give it a lot of momentum, right? Yeah, I well, mean, the investment is, in the technology more than outweighs the cost of an incident. I mean, by far, right? Absolutely. And I think a lot of companies are starting to appreciate that more. Uh, but the problem is we need a standard methodology to measure risk, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and those are, you know, have been established to some extent and, and are probably going to get more sophisticated going forward, right? There's some other things that need to be addressed. We don't have any kind of standards around reporting incidents, you know, and things like that. Uh, there are organizations in the financial sector that are starting to take an interest in actual, you know, OT-level cybersecurity performance among manufacturers because they feel that that affects their long-term viability as a company. Yeah, and the insurers too, right? Insurance companies, yeah, creditors. Uh, you know, it's not just a uh, it's not just a manufacturing thing anymore. Yeah. Cool. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, well, we, we've uh, plumbed the depths here. I'm sorry we've run over probably our, this may be a record-breaking uh, a podcast, but uh, well, there was a lot of ground to cover, and, 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 and we've certainly covered it today, guys. Uh, uh, thanks again. That was, again, some good analysis on everything that's going on, and, uh, and thanks for talking to us again today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Uh, it was great, great to be here. Uh, well, this, this has been a yet another uh, Control Amplified podcast. I'm Jim Montague. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, please remember that Control Amplified podcasts are available on most podcasting apps, such as the iTunes Store and Google Play, and also on Control Magazine's YouTube channel podcasts. Plus, you can uh, also listen at controlglobal.com at any time, of course. All right, thanks a lot.